You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, host Lisa Greenwood, co-host Gil Rindle, and special guests from diverse theological perspectives discuss what core values and truths to carry forward and include in the new emerging church. What values and truths will you carry forward? Join our weekly email, contact us, and find more resources from Leadership Ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood, back with my co-host for this season, my good friend and colleague, Gil Rendell. Hey, Gil. Hey, Lisa. It's good to be with you, and uh, we're kind of wrapping up all these great conversations. We are. So this is our final episode, and Gil, I have to say it is... It has been such a gift to do this with you, to have you as my co-host and to be able to have these conversations together. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, well, you and I have been conversation partners for years and it's always mutual and we always help each other. So thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you. Okay. So since this is our last episode, I thought we'd do a little bit of kind of synthesizing, if you will, thinking about some of the themes that have emerged through these conversations and give us a chance to kind of reflect on the conversations that we've had. But also we've actually asked all of our guests the same question. And I want to ask you, Gil, when you imagine the church 20 or 30 years from now, what do you hope is true? Well, yeah, this is our last time out. So I'll, I'll take a crack at answering that question. If you will. Okay. Uh, so we'll, we'll go both ways here, but but let me see if I can say it this way. You know, this conversation started with that uh, that piece about Jacob's bones, which is the conversation that I was eager to get started about. What is it the church should be carrying into the future? Uh, you know, there is so much that can be distracting. What is what is central? Who do we have to be? What do we have to understand about ourselves? What is the gift we've been given? And so for the most part, these conversations have just been, I think, rich uh, and instructive in terms of, of what is it that needs to go ahead. Almost everyone I go back to, I think about how we've been asking questions uh, to people and they have been responding with their understanding of what the Christian narrative is. They often go back to biblical stories. I mean, I think of Will Willimon and all of his his gift as an educator, as a, as a, uh, you know, kind of a, an academic. He told stories yeah. as a way of responding, and they were based on the biblical stuff. Uh, Andy Crouch was talking about technology, and when we asked questions about techno- technology, he responded with uh, the story, with the biblical story. People are going to be listening in a minute to, uh, to Greg Palmer, Bishop Palmer, and his language is so, so rich about the biblical narrative. I remember he said at one time the scripture uh, seems to testify. In other words, the story of scripture has something to say to us. It helps mm. us to see something different. Well, that's where I am. And, and if I'm going to talk about a church that is going to, uh, you know, be, uh, be worthy uh, in this 20 to 30 years going out from here, it's going to be a church that has a story that allows us to see our lives and allows us to see our world in a really different way. Uh, since I've been working on Jacob's Bones and, and, and trying to push some of the conversations I've been in a little bit further, I've been surprised that uh, some of Paul's work uh, has kind of jumped uh, to the front for me. Mm. And he talks about the mind of Christ. 
you know, have this mind of Christ, or we have the mind of Christ. Or he's talking about, uh, you know, uh, how Christ, uh, you know, brings to us a way of seeing things differently. If we had the mind of Christ, we would be able to see that all people are equal. We would be able to see that there are no differences. We would be able to see that politics is not a way forward if, in fact, it breaks community. Okay, what I'm trying to say is a church 20 or 30 years ago, it really doesn't matter what form it's in. doesn't matter if it meets in buildings, whether it's big, small, whether it's around a dining table or around in a living room, wherever it is. If it is helping people to see something different, then it can be the church. And the difference has to come from what is different by looking through the eyes of Christ. Isn't it interesting because we have tended to think, you know, how do we see things the same as the church, right? As the church, how do we align with each other? How do we figure Mm -hmm. out who we are and who's not in, right? And, right? And you're talking about a different picture. If we align with Christ then it's not about how are we the same and they're all different and so we're in and they're not, but rather, you know, what does it mean to have the eyes of Christ and the mind of Christ in a way that sees how we're connected and how it is right. to be the church today? Yep. I, I'm, I'm overstating yep. it and I realize that, but but I love this image of aligning ourselves, not so much with each other, but but with Christ, right? Yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah, and I think that that's it. That you know, we we are living in a culture that attends to the differences. Yeah. Yet the biblical story has always been a covenant with God in which we are all equal. Uh, you know, as part of the covenant. Yeah. And so, the gift of the church is that it gives us a story that allows us to see life in a very, very different way. Yeah. And that's what we need. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So I, I, as I've been thinking about the church 20, 30 years from now, and, you know, I, I come back to, and this is again, overstating it, oversimplified, but more Jesus, less church. And, and I I think you kind of know what I mean by that in the sense that I don't, I don't really mean less church. I want the church to be this, this embodiment of the gospel and connected. And, but we've, come to be so attached to the structure, the organizational structure of the church. And this kind of gets back to the Jacob's bones that our biblical story, who it is, who we are as followers of Christ, that's the treasure in the clay jar. And so really focused on the the treasure. There are phrases from throughout the season that have just stood out to me. Things like Bishop Palmer says, you know, what would it look like if we were wanting in the church all the people that God wants? And Father Boyle, who talked about every person being unshakably good, and what would it mean if we in the church really, truly believed that every person was unshakably good, knowing that there are all kinds of layers of life and culture and training and background and, you know, family of origin and mental illness and things that can get on top of that, but understanding that we are at the core unshakably good. Anyway, there are all kinds of other phrases I'd love to to pull on, but just to say that this this season has been I it feels to me like it's been one that has has painted a really hopeful picture for what it means to be the church today and move it into the future. 
Yeah, and and none of this stuff that we've been, uh, you know, kind of remembering from yeah. the conversations we've been having, and num- none of, none of this that people are talking about uh, is simplistic in the sense that it ignores the reality of the world right. that we live in. You know, back to Father Boyle. You know, he's talking about these people. You know, no healthy person turns to yeah. violence and and to murder to get what they want. That's not a criminal. That's an unhealthy person. What they need is they need a dose. I love the way he went into the doses. He needs a dose of respect. Mm -hmm. He needs a dose of recognition. He needs a dose of inclusion. Mm -hmm. These are all the things that the church has. And what we have lost is that because it's not an easy answer, we forgot that we have the treasures that can make the difference for people. So this is really uh, important stuff. It isn't isn't just picking at an old tradition. This is important stuff. Yeah, it is. It is. And we have an amazing conversation with Bishop Gregory Palmer and can't wait for you all to hear that that conversation. But first, let me give you his bio. Bishop Gregory Palmer is resident bishop of the West Ohio Conference of the United Methodist Church. Bishop Palmer is a graduate of Duke University Divinity School, and he has served in the local church as a district superintendent and was elected to the Episcopacy in 2000. Bishop Palmer has served as president of the Board of Higher Education and Ministry and as president of the Council of Bishops. He is currently a member of the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters and chairs the Comprehensive Africa Plan. We are so grateful to Bishop Palmer for this conversation and for you, our listeners. Thanks so much for joining us this season. Let's listen to our conversation with Bishop Palmer. Bishop Palmer, thank you for being with us. It is really good to be together. My privilege. Thank you for the opportunity. So I recently had the opportunity to hear you speak at our annual conference, and you used the metaphor of wilderness, which, of course, we use often in the church, and and we can mean different things by wilderness. Will you talk a little bit about how you use that image and that metaphor and, and, and what it means for us in the church today? Sure. Thank you. I've been wrestling for about a year and a half with the notion of wilderness in in my own head and heart. Obviously, it's been seeded over time, including uh, from uh, wonderful people like uh, Gil Rendell. But I um, had this experience of hearing someone cry out, we're in a wilderness. And, and it was the tonality was like, this is like a really bad thing. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And I had this moment, I don't want to call it enlightenment, but it was a moment of pause to say, and the problem is, uh, mm-hmm. what's wrong with that? Who are we more important than Israel than Jesus or Jesus? Uh, where the scriptures seem to testify that People are led into wilderness, sometimes driven into the wilderness. And I'm not saying any of us volunteers to go into the wilderness, particularly if we, you know, pick up that language from Brueggemann and others that wilderness is uh, inhospitable, barren, uh, you know, there's no life there. And yet there's a whole book of the Bible that's the book of the wilderness, the book of mm-hmm. Numbers, and it's it's there and it's going to stay there. And uh, so it means something. So I began to think about and wrestle a little bit more with a few uh, Jewish authors and and also uh, with the Gospels and looking at the life of Jesus. You know, he goes and, you know, returns from baptism and uh, power and anointing of the Spirit and then, then in the wilderness. So the question I asked of myself was, what are the gifts of wilderness? Hmm. And while we might not 
volunteer and say, Hey coach, put me in. I think that's a line I used at your, your <laughs> annual conference. Like, like, like I really need to go into the wilderness. You know, what are the gifts of wilderness times? And among them are uh, opportunities to reflect on our identity. Seems to me that's the key thing that happens with Israel. Uh, it's identity shaping for a whole people. For Jesus in the wilderness, there are the temptation narratives uh, for our Savior, uh, Jesus. And uh, I think, you know, he's wrestling with who he's going to be. Not that he doesn't believe or know that he is the unique divine son of God, that God is speaking to him with these palpable signs uh, and demonstrations that apparently, according to the gospels, others can see as well. But I think he's wrestling with that identity and wrestling with which voice will ultimately claim me. Mm. And I think that's the human experience. We, we all have a cacophony of voices coming in our directions saying, you know, Greg, go this way, uh, try it this way. And uh, there is a voice, uh, there is a spirit, there is a presence, and there is a sense of direction uh, that comes to us. And I think wilderness time allows us to distinguish the voices and to begin to clarify this is who is speaking now and in some cases, this is how God addresses me. Mm. I'm not suggesting that it's the same for everybody, how we sense that this is the leading or the direction of God. Well, Greg, can I pick up on that a little bit? And Because, sure. and, I mean, the wilderness is this wonderful time uh, as if there is some pressure in which we live that makes us ask those kinds of questions. And especially around identity, but right now we're in a church that is choosing multiple identities. And we put, <laughs> we put labels on them, you know, traditionalists and progressives and stuff like that. But each of those is in some sense a chosen identity that comes out of the questions of, you know, having lived with scripture, who do, who do I think I am and, and what is it that's important for me? If we are a people of multiple identities, what's at the center of that? How do you, how do you move? either ourselves or other people to to the questions that can help them to identify what the gospel center is. Mm, yeah. Um, I, I think as we live our lives personally, familially, in the community, even in an institution like the church, which you help us to think through, uh, Gil, and as well, those of you uh, also connected to TMF, I, I think there are seasons in which something about that's at the core of our identity rises to the top. So I don't know if I want to use the sense of, you know, being ambidextrous, uh, mm-hmm. that we're able to bat with, you know, either left-handed or right-handed. In fact, I don't know if that's too limiting in, 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 of, of an image or, or a metaphor, but I do certainly think we ought to be able, this is a little pedestrian, but we ought to be able to walk and blow bubbles at the same time. <laughs> but the key is we're trying to get we're trying to get somewhere to mm-hmm. get something accomplished and to do something uh, to do something meaningful. So I was struck, for example, in in your paper, uh, Jacob's Bones, sort of in a personal way, right right between the eyes, because you know I hope I am an institutionalist. And I am an entrepreneur that's creating. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and so I, I would say to that extent, I think I've got some capacity for more than one identity, mm-hmm. but I hope it's in service to a clear mission 
which is for me to be aligned uh, with the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ, aligned with the triune God, aligned with the purposes that I think God hopes and has for the world of health, uh, of healing, of hope, and of, um, let me say, of sharing. But what I really mean by that is a strong economic notion of shared resources uh, in a world where uh, we should actually be doing better uh, around the needs uh, the needs of this world. And I do, I have a bias, I think, because some have too much, others have uh, too little. And whether that's about what's coming out of the earth or whether about it's di- whether it's about distribution systems, it's still real. <laughs> and then it gets institutionalized because, you know, some people begin to take in, well, that, I'm entitled to that. Mm-hmm. And other people begin to take into themselves. This is the downside of, of, of the underbelly of an identity question. Well, I don't deserve mm-hmm. any better than this. And that's that's deeply sad because I don't think that reflects the heart of God and the heart of the gospel. Yeah, well, to piggyback on that, Bishop Palmer, you, you have a way of uh, truth-telling that is both convicting and uh, makes us kind of chuckle and then go, ouch, yikes. And one of the ways you did that recently, and I heard it on your podcast, you said, you know, we campaigned for becoming chaplains for the middle class, really challenging the Methodist church to to look at our identity and how we are aligned or not aligned with the gospel. So will you say a word about that? For, for a long period of time, I believe our denominations and all of those that make up um, the, the denominations that make up the United Methodist Church now, I think to some extent, we cast our lot with striving to be middle class and beyond. And by the way, let me say parenthetically, but not unimportantly, having enough resources not to be preoccupied with how you're going to eat and live and be housed. There's nothing wrong with that. So I want to be really clear about that. And and what grinding poverty is about is is people that are always forced and are always being forced to figure out where the next is coming from. On the other hand, I, I think some of us have perfected and others beyond ourselves perfected like, well, I have so much, maybe I should build bigger barns. So let me go to the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I have so much that I can't, I can't store it all up. And, and I think somewhere between getting people out of grinding poverty and a preoccupation with, I don't know how I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, how I'm going to feed these kids, how I'm going to have a safe uh, and, and clean place in which to live and building bigger barns. I, I don't know if that's the middle, but I, I think those represent extremes that are, are I got to believe, are, are um, displeasing to God. I think our church and the churches that made them up to a great degree, kind of lined ourselves up sociologically with people that were striving, shall we say, on an upward economic and social trajectory. Now, what I want to be careful to say is these are this is not a speech against education. It's not a speech against personal and communal improvement. It is what are the definitions of those and how are those not only about me, but for the betterment of the people around me. 
How does my education and my financial resources and my social location, how does that serve me and mine? And how does it serve a broader audience? And I, I think there have been different fits and starts of this, but I think post-World War II for sure. So I know I'm leaving out a lot of history. That's who. That's how we identified ourselves and our demographics showed it. And I would say for United Methodists, our institutionalized and constitutionalized segregation at that point, post, post World War II, even though it started, you know, in, well, in the, in the thirties, reinforced that because people were not only in some ways not coming and doing church together uh, across racial lines, which then we would have said would have been mostly black and white. We know it never was truly that, but that's how we saw it in, in, in the American context. And, and they were not doing life together. And, and therefore, the twain were not mixing uh, in ways that might have helped us to overcome some other things. That was just one manifestation. I don't, I'm not suggesting it was about race primarily. In our quest to be what I've referred to as the chaplains to the middle class, and, and I want to say this is not, uh, there's no shade thrown in the direction of people that are professional chaplains and pastoral caregivers, right. uh, whether in the military. Uh, sure. So I don't mean it in that in that sense. So put a small C there for, for chaplains, because I would uh, least of all not want to uh, offend that very important ministry in institutions. But what happened is, you know, we began to, our churches aligned around um, uh, economics. Um, and I'm not saying that didn't happen in any other era. I'm merely talking about what I know and where we went wrong in America with, in terms of particularly the Protestant, uh, so-called Protestant uh, tradition. And, you know, it was important. Well, if you're, you're a church person, you know, well, make sure you belong to one of these uh, other um, social clubs. So whether or not it's something like Rotary or uh, Elks or Kiwanis and all of that. And again, I'm not, Bad mouthing that they don't do do some good, but it was it was the ways in which we were aligning ourselves, and particularly what we sort of seem to expect of clergy or people in the pew said, "Well, we want our pastor, for example, to be a part of because it was a sign of upward." mobility or confirmation of a certain uh, a certain social status. In the course of that, I think we lost a part and Gil, I hope I'm not misstating this, but we lost some of our bones mm-hmm. from brother Wesley and others and under identification or lack thereof with the poor and with the marginalized, et cetera, because we were spending our time and energy identifying with other groups of people. That said, everybody matters. Sure. <laughs> All social and economic groups matter. But I do think uh, a part of um, our early genius in this movement was um, the drilling into us um, back in the days of Mr. Wesley, that a part of our uh, gospel accountability was to be in relationship with, not just delivering services to, but in relationship with people that are at the social and economic mm-hmm. margins. You'll need to edit all that down. <laughs> <Yeah. I'm sure. laughs> no, uh, actually, I think we might want to expand that a little bit. Uh, Greg, your, your preaching and teaching is so rich with yeah. metaphor, but the metaphor is so on target that it lifts things up with clarity. And so even in the time that we're talking here, on the one hand, you're talking about uh, you know being captured by the middle class. But at the, on the other side, you're talking about being aligned with the gospel. 
Now, as a church, uh, or let me let me go at it this way: as a bishop in our church, you sit at the center of that. You are a leader within a middle class denomination, but you have a sense that the gospel is saying something not only larger but something quite different. How does that impact you? How do you find yourself trying to negotiate that strain, or or how do you get? How do you see yourself trying to turn the church back to alignment with the gospel? I actually spoke to that. Uh, I think these two colleagues heard that. Um, uh, I've been thinking about what I hoped I've been doing all along in local churches as a superintendent and uh, in this role of general superintendent. One of the things I would hope might be said about me as I sort of near retirement is he tried to face, help the church face out to the world. Mm -hmm. That's a broad general thing, but it's, it's to, to stop gazing at our own navels and uh, our own institutional navels. I, I think there's lots of institutional infrastructure that helps us to actually deliver good things and, um, can, can launch us into the world. But I think sometimes we're, we're sort of hung up on ourselves and our own futures. And how it affects me is, is the tug that I feel sometimes like, am I, am I surrendered enough that I can actually choose to say no to some things? Because I've said yes to this. Mm-hmm. And, and I've not, I've not always been let me say successful at that uh, at any point in the local church or in any ministry of oversight or, uh, or supervision. And there've been times where, you know, I I've thrived on some of the, uh, some of the hobnobbing. So I, let me, let me confess. I hope I've used it to leverage those relationships, not in the sense of making them utilitarian, but because relationships develop with people that have means and capacity, uh, whether through the institution or personal means, to invite them to face out to the world. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not 100% true that, that I've always done that. Sometimes I can't see it. Sometimes I've lacked the courage to ask. <laughs> and uh, it's one thing to get up and give a speech or a sermon <laughs> and say, this is what we should do. It's another thing to go to somebody with great capacity and say, had you thought about Mm-hmm. And in um, the first capital p- campaign I was uh, involved in in an annual conference uh, in this role, I, I was um, we were actually it was for ourselves, but mm-hmm. it was for camping. And um, one of the things I discovered in talking to some potential donors with capacity, and you guys would know this at TMF far better than I would, is that they were not used to the entity called the annual conference asking them for major gifts. They were used to it in the local church. God knows they were in, uh, used to it with other institutions in the community, educational institution, hospitals, et cetera. And one of the first large gifts I got was uh, for a family. It was for an e- equestrian center at a UM camp that was going to uh, focus on using uh, large animals, horses in particular, in the process of healing Mm -hmm. and uh, stress reduction and calmness and working with persons who are challenged, children who were challenged in some way, uh, whether it's physical or uh, emotional or otherwise. And a donor gave me in the conference a large gift because they had Mm -hmm. a child with uh, some challenged development that they already knew uh, being 
around animals and large animals had had a calming effect uh, in some other places. And they said, if you, Bishop, if you want, if you want to have a program at a camp that will help more children do this, here's the check. Mm. And uh, so my point is the courage, the, the insight to connect the dots. And I didn't actually know that till I asked them. They had been identified as having capacity and having an interest in camping. I didn't know about their grandchild. And when that door opened for them, they literally began to weep (laughs) and that their church was thinking about this population of people and this resource from, from the natural world. So it's that dot connecting. It's the courage to ask mm-hmm. uh, people to uh, open themselves. And it's uh, helping groups like annual conferences, not that we ought to be having a capital campaign all the time. And we certainly don't want to get in the way of local churches. But, you know, every now and again, we ought to be asking because we got some in other institutions that we birthed that can do some things that we're connected to and want to be helpful in uh, that may not happen uh, somewhere else, or we want it to be faith-based. So an easy illustration, but a very clear memory for me. And I hear you talking about a situation where, you know, it could be seen that organization of the annual conference was having this capital campaign for itself, but it really was about how do we do ministry that is outward facing, that is meeting the needs of children, youth, folks that could really benefit from this. So understanding that our work uh, is Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. outward facing, um, and that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Of course, Mm -hmm. that's the gospel alignment. Yeah, now that I've only got two years to go, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of yeah, lots of ideas sure. that I won't get to, to implement. But uh, and, and it's easy to raise money sort of for new congregations, new ventures like that. One of the things that happened here in West Ohio, and it was it was really uh, started and, and, and uh, pretty well completed by the time I got here, my predecessor, um, Bishop Bruce O., the Wings of the Morning uh, campaign, which is a, a medical uh, plane to uh, uh, for our partner relationship with uh, mm-hmm. North Katanga Annual mm-hmm. Conference of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, but I have been there and seen the life saving, getting people uh, in, in remote and rural or bush like areas closer to access to better health care and medical care. And whether or not it's for malaria or whether or not they need to go to a burn unit, <laughs> they, they needed something other than traveling over um, the road infrastructure, which is not that good and would take forever. And, um, Every day, a United Methodist missionary is uh, Gaston in Tambo is flying that plane, moving people, and in some cases, moving healthcare resources to get them from one place to another uh, for people that would have often little to no access to quality of care or the amount of care that they may need for a longer haul. Well, there's a part of this that um, you know, I love the fact that you're saying that you've got two years left and suddenly you're seeing new things. Uh, I think retirement did that to me. I wish, uh, you know, wish to heaven I could have seen a lot of this stuff before I got to be this age. But I think this may also be the wilderness moment that, that we're being pushed to see new things. Now, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Greg, if you go back to your history, I really think one of the things that was happening that, uh, as we entered into the 70s and 80s, is the church lost its voice in the culture. People were simply not attending to us. And the way I often say it is that uh, we were timid. What we did is that um, the church just went back home and started to talk about the church to the church. 
And we just kind of, then that's that navel gazing that you're talking about there. Okay. But that meant that we ended up in a real safe spot. And so with all the issues that's been happening, you know, the church gets angry at the work that other people don't do. You know, we get all upset. Legislators don't do the legislation. And, you know, we go on and on and on about uh, our, our sense of justice and how other people haven't done it. But these examples that we're now talking about are examples of us getting back out into relationship and really talking about the needs and talking about how do we connect dots together on this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. being in that kind of relationship takes a tremendous amount of courage. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, the courage of actually being in a place where they may say no, uh, or mm-hmm. that you may have, we find we've got it wrong or something. So I, mm-hmm. I do think it's a new, new time that calls on courage more than anything else. I agree very much, very much. You know, that uh, losing our voice in the culture, by the way, was partly that result of our over-identification with a segment of the culture. Right. And in the course of that, we lost our voice would be the extreme, less extreme, but I think also true is um, we didn't know how to leverage our voice and our influence Mm -hmm. or we... or back to the courage, we didn't choose to do it. We were we overvalued being respected and being nice. And I'm not suggesting that in order to get good work done, gospel work, you've got to be a jerk. And, you know, you go about, the goal is not offending people. The goal is inviting people into an ongoing newness that I think the gospel is inviting us into all the time. So recently, one of the things I said to the West Ohio uh, conference when we were in session was about our um, anti-racism work, which is still coming to full flower um, by any way you, any way you calculate it. And I said, I'd like you to think about this not as the sociology and the race police. I want you to think about this as a discipleship matter and uh, tried to paint a very brief picture to say, you know, we, we often sort of casually say, well, what would Jesus do or what would, what do we think he would have us to do? And it's, it's really answering the question, who, who do we, who do we want to be? And do we actually think that the gospel and people who are filled with the gospel have the potential to make, to make the difference? Our anti-racism work is not about uh, checking something off the list or hiring another staff person. It's about our ongoing relationships or the lack thereof. And it's got a, it's not only the work we're doing in the life of the institutional church, the image I wanted to create for them was it's about how you deploy into the places where you live actually most of your life, which is you're the, you know, in families, you know, parents or whoever's raising, you know, Johnny and Sally are the biggest influences early on on how the younger people in that household begin to think about people who look different than they are or, who, or whose accent um, accent is different. It's about being in the in the workplace and having the opportunities uh, to speak into conversations that you know you're overhearing. <laughs> and it's back to the courage thing, having the courage to say not to pick a fight with your colleagues at work. But, you know, when they say, you know, you know, we're in this ditch as a company because, you know, uh, I heard. You know, and, and let me tell a story. I was at, I was at the YMCA in Des Moines, Iowa some years ago. I heard a couple guys, a uh, couple lockers over and they were bemoaning 
bemoaning something that had happened in their uh, for-profit workplace. And the blame as to why they weren't being promoted, again, I'm just overhearing part mm-hmm. of this conversation. They're coming out of the shower off the racquetball court or whatever they were doing, was if it wasn't for the company's need to check off something in hiring, they said specifically, mm-hmm. and I quote now, women and minorities, we, we'd be in a better position. These, they happen to be two, I would say, 30-something, almost 40 Anglo males. And so the inclusion of other people was uh, what was the, the source of all of their problems as to why they were not moving up the ladder. So my question in my own head, I didn't get, it was their conversation. They weren't using any foul language. So I didn't, I didn't have a relationship with them, didn't know them at all. So I didn't enter into that. If I had heard them say, you know, use the N word or something like that, I probably would have walked around the lockers and said, uh, just let me say, just presented myself yeah. so that they'd have to deal with it. What, what, um, I wondered if in the workplace, someone mm. under the unction of the gospel <laughs> would have said, Hey, I know another narrative. I've got another story. How, how might this company be better because we are more diverse? And, and sometimes when we think that somebody else got our spot, which can happen anywhere, I mean, it happens in classrooms and all of that, is, you know, we, we lose sight of a more nuanced, textured picture of, of who we might be. And we lose the sense that there is actually room for everybody. And, and we've done that in the United Methodist Church sometimes. We do it when, you know, somebody gets selected for a role and somebody else doesn't. There's a blame game that sometimes takes place that is, is, um, unhelpful. And it's often genderized and often racialized. And then you add to that more people, uh, for whom English is not their first language mm-hmm. and they're not born here. It just keeps the beat just keeps on going. And some people feel disenfranchised. So we got to find a more excellent way of saying that this work of deconstructing and creating something new has got to have a picture where everybody's in the picture from the beginning. But the picture isn't so dry that if there's a a grouping of people, a demographic that we had not yet thought of, that there won't be room for them. And And I think that's where we've got to get out on the creative edge to figure out how not to lock it in, lock it down so that there won't be room for what we or who we can't see yet or who's not here yet. You and a couple of your colleagues have, uh, have launched a podcast really to have this conversation. Will you say a word about that? Sure. Uh, the Unfinished Church podcast involves uh, Bishops Latrell Easterling, Baltimore, Washington Conference. We started the conversation before okay. she was assigned to the Peninsula Delaware Conference, but she serves both of those, Bishop Michael McKee in North Texas and uh, myself in West Ohio. And I want to give credit where it's due. Our, our council directors, Connectional Ministries directors, have been in some conversation, um, and I don't know if it started in a larger group of Connectional Ministries directors, but the three of them began to talk about and compare and contrast and learn from each other about how 
in the respective conferences, we were coming toward the matters of anti-racism work and of diversity, inclusion, and belonging work. And um, out of that, they invited the bishops into a conversation. And as that conversation got more rich, we said, what if we found a way to work together to, number one, learn from each other about this work? Number two, hold one another accountable for the work in our respective conferences. And number three, this would be a part of the learning benefit by the fact that these three annual conferences or Episcopal areas are in distinctly different geographies in the United States. So, you know, Texas, uh, North Texas in particular, you've got uh, the Mid-Atlantic region and distinct histories around race, but also sharing and uh, leading into a common story uh, and distinct histories of how the church emerged in those places uh, over over time. And uh, so we agreed to do that. And then aside from learning from each other, the question was, how might we be a blessing to people beyond ourselves, beyond West Ohio, Baltimore, Washington, uh, and North Texas? And the podcast was one way that emerged. And, you know, we beat it around. The council directors helped us. The communicators got involved. And and we kind of said, what if? And it ended up having this title of the unfinished church, like the, the, the matter of the deconstruction of racism and building in order to build the beloved community. Because for me, I'm into, if I'm going to tear something down, I want to know what I'm building Mm -hmm. in its place. And I'm okay if it's to let the ground lie fallow. I just need, I need to say it out loud. So I'm engaged in anti-racism work in order to build something better that is um, been delivered from uh, the demonic forces of racism. So the podcast is, is our effort to bring into conversation thoughtful people, um, who can stimulate not only us, but more stimulate a wide audience. So professional theologians that teach in academic mm-hmm. settings to a person like Opal Lee, the mother or grandmother of Juneteenth, to Ibu Patel and uh, his work as um, Interfaith uh, America, a, a right? Muslim yeah. uh, educator activist, mm-hmm. uh, Indian descent and in, in, innovator, you know. And so it the work of anti-racism is work for people in the gospel doesn't mean we can't learn from people in other communities of faith as well. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how that emerged. We're excited about it. Uh, the burden on us now is who are the next six people we're going to interview or are we a one hit wonder? <laughs> <laughs> well, those interviews are really strong and just amazing people that you're getting to have conversation with. And, and I think it's so important that you are catalyzing converse, further conversation, right? That th- these are conversations, those podcasts that folks can use in their own, you know, with their leaders leadership teams or their Sunday school classes or or those kinds of things where they can really peel back some of the layers on racism, but really enter into it from where they are. And so I I appreciate that you're doing that. Mm -hmm. You have named race and racism particularly as one of the places that the church needs to be going when when we focus outward from ourselves. You've also named poverty and mass incarceration. Can you say a word about what it means for the church to face outward in these ways and and particularly to engage poverty and mass incarceration? Thanks very much. Uh, Again, um, uh, engaging uh, both of those, by the way, would help us look at 
our our roots in terms of our uh, faith history and uh, some of the things that uh, the early Methodists emphasized, and along with other people of good good Christian faith uh, in that time. But I'm referring to to John and Charles Wesley at this particular point. But there's a whole cast of characters um, around them, and um, I think we need to be engaged with and in relationship with the poor. And I'm quoting somebody else here, not for so much for their sake alone, but for the sake of our own souls. Mm. And again, whether you want, you want to go back to getting our heads out of our navels or seeing uh, the ways in which people have been disenfranchised because of the economic the way in which the world rolls economically. And this is not just, I'm not just talking about in the United States, but uh, this is, this is a global, a global problem. And, um, you know, how do we move from, for example, what I call mission tourism, where we, uh, right now we've got thousands of United Methodist youth and adults doing mission trips somewhere, often from communities that are in pretty good shape one way or the other. Nothing wrong with that. You, you, you don't, if you don't go and see something different, you'll never be different. But how does that work continue when we move back uh, into our own, our own zip codes? And uh, one of the things that, that, that I'm always interested in is we can get pretty good at uh, sort of this one-on-one relationship, particularly if it's service delivery. I don't know of any United Methodist Church that's not connected to a food pantry. Mm-hmm. In one way, whether or not it's in their building, whether or not they're doing it ecumenically in their community, they're doing something. My question for us is, and how do we get at the public policy issues uh, so that we begin have a declining need for food pantries? In other words, how do we get I think a vision, yeah, a vision of a hopeful future is not to need a bread line uh, or to need fewer bread lines. And I know that sounds simplistic, but uh, but I want to say it is a picture of a hopeful future. Mm-hmm. Where nobody's uh, scuffling to get their 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 daily bread, for for whatever the reasons are. Many people who are in uh, the so called justice system or have caught a case, there is a direct line of sight from from poverty and race into lives that get you. Uh, let me say, jacked up in the criminal justice system. Yeah. And I know jacked up is not a word we use every day, but uh, it, it communicates. I'm not saying that only people who are poor or of color commit crimes or are arrested for allegedly committing crimes. In fact, it's disproportionate mm-hmm. <laughs> because of uh, implicit bias and, and some other things. So uh, let me parenthetically say, if I go to the CVS, I, I had a great conversation. This was particularly in the wake of the George Floyd thing. Now, I'm a mid-60s guy at this point, and I went in, and I don't know, I think I bought uh, some half and half. Uh, my wife had said, pick some up on the way home, and I didn't feel like going in the big grocery store to get it. <laughs> so I get the half and half, and uh, the young clerk, about 16 years old behind, said, uh, do you, do you want to, would you like a bag? Now, I recognize, um, you know, our need to care for the environment. I want to be uh, serious about that. But I always ask, I always get a bag and I always get a receipt because in my mind, there's mm-hmm. a tape playing. Don't leave a store with ah. any product exposed. I might put a pack of gum in my pocket, but I still ask for a paper receipt because if there's a dispute 
and particularly if the law gets involved. I need more facts on my side than not on my side. You with me? Now, that's drilled into me as an African-American male of my generation. I, I know, you know, my son, who's just turned 40, uh, he does almost everything digitally and electronically. But but uh, occasionally I remind him, you know, don't don't forget, we haven't turned the tide on this completely. So this young clerk says, looked at me quizzically like, like, dude, for a, a pint of half and half, um, you want a bag, you know, and, and he wasn't judging. It was just, it was weird to him. Why don't you just walk? And, and so it was a wonderful teachable moment. And I said, man, uh, in the skin I'm in, I learned it's better to walk out of a store with your product in a bag. There will be fewer questions on everybody's part as to whether or not you bought it or you stole it. And um, and I said, that's just that's just in me. And if you talk to, you know, people older than me, like my dad passed last year, he was 96, never would walk out, you know, maybe a pack of gum. That would be it. Mm-hmm. And, and he would start opening that. So it looked like it belonged to him already and put the first piece in his mouth because he just didn't want the static that, you know, you took something that didn't belong to you. That may be a little hypersensitivity. I should be over that in 2022 or the society should be over their implicit bias. But I'm, I don't assume that I'm the guy that's going to get the break in the traffic stop, even though I'm, I'm sure I often do. I hope I don't get stopped, uh, stopped that much. So back to the line between poverty and mass incarceration. I think mass incarceration is, and particularly the racialized nature of it in America, is one of the scandals of our time. We incarcerate and warehouse more human beings of every color proportionately than any nation on earth. And we do not especially have less crime. Are you, you with me? Mm-hmm. And and uh, But the other thing that I've learned from connecting with people who have been somewhere what I call on the spectrum of their lives being affected by the justice, uh, the criminal justice system is that there is a rich resource that we're neglecting. (laughs) And people that are incarcerated or have just come out have said to me, they would say it to you too, it's nothing special about me, that they're always concerned about how they're going to be received by, by family and loved ones uh, in their community of origin, can, how they'll be received in the job market. Because, you know, get out, stay clean, get a job and all that. And, and it's really hard when you put down there, I've been convicted of a felony uh, to get a job, even if it's nonviolent, et cetera. But they are concerned about how they're going to be treated if they go to a religious institution. Mm-hmm. And I want to say particularly the Christian church. They that, that that's why we need to be concerned because they matter. They matter while they're in jail. If you if you don't want to visit the jails, everybody in the penitentiary has left somebody behind. Child, spouse, significant other, uh, somebody at home is bearing that burden. Even if it's a, a single adult male that's been incarcerated, there's a mother and or a father at home crying over their baby that went to jail. And so let's not forget about these people that we're warehousing. Other thing is, I have found a rich leadership resource uh, in talking to these folks. So even the gangs in the prison, there are people that actually know a lot about leadership. Mm. You know, if you were a gang leader and you were selling drugs and all that and doing violence in the street to maintain your turf, I would say that's um, more than a little misguided, meaning it doesn't build up the social fabric. 
But the fact that they are many natural born leaders (laughs) that are incarcerated, how are we tapping that resource to learn more about leadership? And how are we making room for them in the pew, in the life, uh, in the life of the church? So another soundbite, it's pretty cliche-ish, but if we wanted all the people that God wanted, we'd be having a different conversation about our membership and participations. Mm, mm, different conversations. Whether or not it's poverty, whether or not it's immigration status or first language, whether or not it's they've been incarcerated. If we wanted all the people that God wanted and that God is interested in, which would be all of us, we, we would be having some significantly significantly different different convert conversations. And I think uh, those that have had the experience of being a part of real, robust rehabilitation programs while incarcerated, I think the church and other institutions, not necessarily faith-based, are absolutely the ones that need to help say what's the next iteration of that for people that are returning citizens. One of the most significant things is just the change in language that has happened over the last 12 to 15 years, not ex-cons, not ex-felons, but returning citizens. Mm -hmm. That alone forces me, you, and everybody else to put on a different set of lenses. And 15 years ago, I was saying ex-cons, even though I was leading initiatives into the jails. (laughs) And, And I'm saying so you know, so even I had to I had to clean up my language, or uh, most especially I should, because they were they were saying, you know, I'm going to do better if you treat me like I'm a part of this mm-hmm. community. Yeah. That's what returning citizen looks like. And um, so anyway, m- more than you wanted. I'm sorry. No, actually, it's it's close to home and and a really hopeful word. Thank you. It's it's a good time for us, I think, to ask our final question that we're asking everybody during this season and. That is when you imagine the church 20 or 30 years from now for these next generations, what do you hope is true? I hope the church is passionately hooked into Jesus the Christ. And and I want to say the, the Jesus of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to say the the synoptics and John, <laughs> it's it's all it's all good, <laughs> and uh, and I understand those uh, a little bit of those differences. That that at the center in the heart is um, uh, is Jesus Christ, um, you know, by extension, of course, and not insignificantly, um, the the triune God, and that we will be focused on uh, the worship of God and the and 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 the formation of people so that we can glorify God in large part and perhaps in largest part because we are serving our neighbor and building and participating in building um, a new social uh, infrastructure in wherever we are if we're in the, mm. the Democratic Republic of Congo in the Ukraine or in the United in the United States I hope secondly that it is multi-generational mm. my greatest fear I don't know if that's accurate. Uh, One of my fears is that we will not show enough generational nuance because we've not listened well to uh, generations that have been saying, hey, let me in. When is it my uh, when is it my turn? And I hope uh, thirdly, I, I believe in Bible knowledge that is necessary for my formation. I believe in um having some core doctrines and i hope the church 
will be formed that it's here's my phrase that the list of deal breakers as to whether or not I'm a real Christian or whether or not I'll walk away from you as a Christian will be like really Mm -hmm. short. I think right now that list is too long. Some of the things where I think there is ample room making the case in Bible and theology and church history to not have the same angle of view. So whether or not that's human sexuality or something else, I don't want the places where I've got a different angle of view from uh, colleague Christians, peer Christians for them. I want the list of deal breakers to be like really slim. Mm. And for me, it would be adequate. The deal breaker for me would be that no Jesus, no church. I mean, I, I, I'd like to get it drilled down <laughs> to that. Uh, now, I, I obviously I haven't done a, good enough job in getting that done in my lifetime. God knows uh, if I'm alive in 20 years, uh, if any difference. But I I think that's what people are yearning for. Please uh, don't hear this as that there are no healthy boundaries. Mm -hmm. But I believe the gospel is is large enough to have, whether you want to say multiple angles of view or a wide angle. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure which of those metaphors I want to uh, land on today. Maybe it's both and maybe uh, I don't even have the right mm-hmm. one. But I want the angle of view that the gospel gives me to be have me far less excluding others from my world or me feeling I need to exclude myself from the mm-hmm. world and from other people that call themselves Christians. Fourth thing is what I see in that future is we've got to live in a much more interactive, interdependent relationship with other living faith traditions. Mm. But I don't but but I don't think we gotta sell the farm and we don't have to walk away from Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bishop Palmer, for being with us. It is always inspiring when when I'm with you. So thank you, thank you. Well great well, you. thank you. Your words are are remarkable in in terms of how they push us but your spirit even more so Uh, you're appreciated friend well thank you igniting imagination is a production of the leadership ministry team at wesleyan investive and texas methodist foundation with excellent editing support from truthwork media check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them i'm blair thompson white And from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.